Well, if you brought your Bible today, uh, this is the time where we uh, enter into our time of teaching. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. So uh, grab your Bible or there's a Bible underneath the chair in front of you. Um, if you don't, didn't bring yours, um, if you don't have a Bible, you can take that one home with you. It's our gift to you. Everyone should have a copy of the scriptures. Um, and when you get a Bible, open up to John chapter 13. John 13. Uh, John is one of the four gospel accounts that we have recorded for us in the New Testament, that they kick off the, the, the New Testament, actually, and the, the New Testament is about three-quarters, two-thirds, three-quarters of the way into the Bible. So if you start there and start thumbing around, you should bump into John pretty quickly. Um, so John is, uh, it's really cool that we have four gospels that kind of, the gospel in the Bible is, is just an account uh, that, that different writers wrote about the, the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and they all kind of do it from a different vantage point, and they're all kind of, they're written by uh, either one of the disciples or a close friend of the disciples, and, and John is actually writing much later than the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Sometimes those are called the synoptic gospels by the academic people um, because they're so similar. They share a lot of content, but John is very, very dissimilar because he's writing much, uh, much after that, much after the time they wrote, and he's trying to provide some details about Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection that we don't have. Um, and so we've been walking through John, and uh, if you've been tracking with us, you might be getting tired of that trope. Like, every week we talk about how John's different and special and unique. Well, I got some good news for you. That's, that, that trope's going to die today, Okay. Today we're going to be looking at the Last Supper in John chapter 13, and John recounts two conversations that the other three uh, synoptic gospels also recount for us, a conversation with Judas and a a conversation with Peter that happens at the Last Supper, at Jesus' last meal, which is also the yearly celebration of the Jewish Passover. So let's read our passage today that, that really, uh, that has both of those conversations in it that the, all the other gospel writers include too, and then we will dive into it together, all right? So it's 13, the big one, three, and then go to the small 18. That's verse 18, okay? So we're kind of coming in mid-conversation. If you were here last week, Jesus just washed his disciples' feet and then told them why he did that. Okay, then he sat back down at the dinner table, and then he says this. He says, I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen, but the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread, and the one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Truly, I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me. And the one who receives me receives receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified. Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, This is the first time John refers to himself like this, okay? So from here on to the end of the gospel, he's going to refer to himself in this way. Uh, So in, in the third person, in this way. One of the disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus, Simon Peter, Simon Peter men, uh, motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about. So Peter shoots him a little glare, like, hey, okay, figure out what this is all about. John? So John, he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? 
And just like in, in most other cultures in the world, you know, uh, men tended to show a little more physical affection than they do in the West. So they're kind of reclining together at the table. Like I, I actually did a mission trip over in Kenya when I was in, in, in college, and I was surprised that as we walked around town, the, Ken, the, the, the men would grab my hand and we'd hold hands down the street. Okay? Other cultures just show more uh, physical affection uh, among men. So this is kind of what's happened, this kind of uh, uh, intimate gathering with his disciples and this intense conversation about betraying Jesus is coming up. At the same time, there's like a strange juxtaposition there. You feel it? John wants you to feel it. Okay, and now Jesus replied, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. When he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. After Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So, quick, so Jesus told him, what you're doing, do quickly. None of those reclining at the table knew why he had said this to him. Since Judas kept the money bag, some thought that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival, or that he should give something to the poor. But after re- receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left, and it was night. When he had left, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also, also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Oof. Children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Tune into last week's sermon where Dave unpacked that along with his foot washing. Now, here's that second conversation. Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, Will you lay down your life for me? Do you, do you hear the irony there? Jesus is like, I came into this world to lay down my life for you, but you're thinking you're gonna lay down your life for me. It's a, it's a really interesting irony that you can miss if you just read through it quickly. Uh, Truly I tell you, Jesus said, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. So these are, this is the text we're gonna go through today. These are two conversations we're going to look at. Will you pray with me just real quick as we engage it? Uh, Father God, uh, I come before you today just to ask three things, God, that, that you would um, continue to um, reveal yourself uh, to your followers, uh, to those who are, would not yet count themselves as one of your followers. God, I ask that you would uh, make yourself known to them in, in a new and special way this morning as well. And then thirdly, God, I just ask that you would not let me mix up the names Judas and Jesus today. Amen. That is my deep anxiety right now, okay? So if I do it, feel free to raise your hand and be like, whoa, fix that, fix that. You just called Jesus Judas or the other way around? Okay. So we have some heavy topics here, right? We have some heavy topics here today. Perhaps you didn't think you'd be coming to church talking about Judas, Satan, betrayal, um, desertion, these are some pretty heavy, heavy subjects to work through on a Sunday morning, uh, but I have some really good news for you, because when we wrestle with the hard things of Scripture um, that they present for us, uh, and when we truly wrestle with them, like we set aside our own presuppositions, when we set aside 
our own, I guess you could say, assumptions, when we set aside our own defenses that we've constructed that kind of keep us from like having to listen to them or do them, when we decide to like not bristle at them when we hear them, when we separate ourselves from like all of that, and if you have a heartbeat, you have some of that, okay? Especially as we come into hard scriptures. When you separate yourself from all of that and ask, could this be true? Could this have really happened? And, and what if it is? Uh, that's an act we call considering at Sedaris. So if you hear us say consider Jesus, that's, that's really what we have in mind as we like set aside your defenses just for a minute and consider, just entertain the thought that it could be true. But because when you do that with the scriptures, with Jesus, this, this book is a book about Jesus. When you do that, what you will discover is you actually have access to joy and, and purpose and, and meaning and, and life in different ways than you have had before. Even though these scriptures are exposing and, and difficult, they're, they're like that for everybody, as we engage them and consider them honestly, what you might discover is that there's a God of joy and life and meaning and purpose that loves you, and so he wants to give you that joy, life, meaning, and, and purpose. And so I just want to preface that, th- this text with that today, to invite you to, to consider it, because we are talking about some pretty heavy things. They're only meant to guide us toward that life, um, and so I really pray that, that um, they can do that for you today. So, so with that said, let's consider um, these conversations. Now, like I said, um, All the other gospel writers include these for us regarding Judas, the betrayer, and Peter, you could call him the deserter. Um, All four of them do this. Why might that be? Well, well, frankly, because the first century church had had many experiences of Judas's and many experiences of, of Peter's in it. Uh, From the very beginning, persecution comes up against the church. We see it in the book of Acts from the the Jewish religious leadership. Um, Paul himself, who wrote many of the letters in the New Testament, was involved in persecuting Christians. And then the Roman Empire uh, gets on board with it. We see a a big mass persecution of of, uh, Christians around AD 64. Um, And really after that, it's really um, whatever authority of whatever province you were in at the time, you were, if you were a Christian, you were really just subject to whatever their opinion of the Jesus movement was. And so you had these kind of scattered persecution movements um, all over the Greco-Roman world where the gospel was spreading. And when you read the early documents of the, the like what you would call the church fathers, not stuff that's in the Bible, but like, uh, like the early pastors and, and thinkers, uh, you quickly understand that these persecutions would really create this dynamic within the churches um, that went something like this. A wave of persecution would come through a city, um, and then some of the Christians uh, would sell out their fellow followers to gain favor with the ruling party, and then other Christians would deny that they were following Jesus at all. And then that persecution wave would, would pass, and it would go, and Sometimes you had these deserters, perhaps even betrayers, wanting to be part of the church again. And it's not like they could just go to a church where that action was unknown because there was just one church in each city. 
and you see the early fathers wrestling and providing guidance on like, how do we fold these people back? Should we fold these people back in? And so that's why this is like on the forefront of all four of the gospel writers' minds, and they all want to make sure we see this dynamic was present at the, the, the Last Supper of Christ. Now, what is unique about John is he wants the reader to individually wrestle with the tensions of betrayal and desertion. Because when we encounter these conversations in Matthew and Mark and Luke, uh, they're much more communal. They're much more Jesus having a conversation with all of his disciples. So like for instance, when Jesus announces that he will be betrayed, the synoptics tell us that each of the disciples that go around in a circle and they ask, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? 12 times. Because it's much more of a communal thing. And that actually ends up devolving into this whole other argument about which one they think is actually going to do it. <laughs> which then leads to another argument of, okay, who's going to be the greatest in Jesus' coming kingdom? You know, Incredible meal to be a part of, I suppose. Um, but a similar dynamic is present with this topic of desertion and, and Peter. Because Jesus actually kicks off this conversation in some ways. In, in the other gospel accounts, you see it. He says, um, and when I'm betrayed, all of you will scatter and desert me. All of you will scatter and desert me. And it's after this that Peter enters into the conversation and eventually says, even if I have to die, I will never deny you, Jesus. And then Matthew gives us a really interesting comment where he says, and then all of the, di- all of the disciples said the same thing. Okay, so this is Mark 14. Matthew 26, Luke 22. Okay, the much more communal nature, but John wants to draw out the, the individual nature of these conversations to help Jesus' followers really conceive of their individual temptations that arise towards betrayal and desertion as they follow Jesus. Like ultimately, John wants, wants me and, and you to wrestle with what it means to follow Jesus in the hopes that you or me might be able to identify any Judas or Peter temptations that are present within us, or I guess I should say within yourself or myself. You see, like I even say within us because it kind of lessens the individual challenge. John wants the individual challenge to be there, so he kind of tightens the screws in that way. It's, it's difficult. Yikes. But here's the beauty. Remember, these are all things that are are meant and why John is writing them to lead us to life. And there is some incredible hope here in these conversations and it takes the form of a rooster, a rooster. So let's roll up our sleeves and get into it and and really in in order to appreciate the rooster which comes at the very end, right, verse 38, we have to really understand the conversation and the dynamics that are at play with Judas as well. That's why we're going to take these together this morning. Now, so let's start with Judas. Now, John has been pointing the finger at Judas throughout his whole gospel, actually. Uh, The other synoptic gospels don't do this like John has done it, Um, but John has mentioned Judas five times up to this point, and he tells us uh, in these little editorial comments that he is the betrayer, kind of before it happens. And you get the sense that he's kind of saying, like, I knew all along, I never liked that guy. You kind of get that sense from John. 
But even in this passage here, he kind of has a, a chance to like say, Judas, he just said he's gonna, that you're going to be the betrayer, you're the betrayer. And he doesn't quite do it. You know, like, he doesn't quite know, you know, but you still get the sense of the whole time. He, he, he had a thing. He's like suspicious of this Judas guy. But let's look at the situational dynamics at play in the betrayal of Judas so that you can really understand this conversation and what's going on. Um, we have to back up to the beginning of chapter 13. The first couple verses go like this. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that this hour had come to, that, that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, when it was time for supper, that's the Passover supper yearly celebrated by the Hebrews, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So we, we, John is letting us know, okay, Judas has in his mind that he's going to betray Jesus. Now, why was this the case? Well, because six, day, six days prior to this meal, um, Mary, one of Jesus' disciples, brought what we're told, as John tells us, is a pound of pure and expensive nard perfume and anoints Jesus' feet with it. And this pissed Judas off. He was so upset with it. Jesus celebrates her for doing it. Judas, what does he say? He says, that stuff isn't even for feet. We could have sold it. It's worth a year's salary. We could have given it to the poor. We could have done something good here. We just wasted it on Jesus. He's pissed. He's pissed. And so after this, Judas went to the chief priests. He went to the chief priests. Um, Oh, and John gives us a little editorial note in this interaction. John says he wasn't really caring about the poor. He just controlled the money bag, and he was like skimming money off the top. Okay, very interesting. <laughs> um, but Judas, I think, I think Ju- Judas loved looking like he provided for the poor, and he loved providing for himself. He loved both of those things. And after this event, Jewish, Judas goes to the chief priests, He goes to the chief priests, the Jewish religious authorities, and he said he would help them find Jesus if they paid him. I know you're looking for Jesus. You want him dead. If you pay me, I'll give him to you. I'll tell you where he's going to be. We can go. We can get him. Okay? And um, so they agree to this. They give him 30 pieces of silver, or they agree to give him 30 pieces of silver. The only caveat is, which we're told this in Mark chapter 14, We can't do this during the Passover festival, they say. All the people are here and the crowds are going to riot. We can't do it yet. So coming into this Passover meal, Judas has already made up his mind to betray Jesus. But the plan is, after the Passover is kind of wrapped up, Judas is going to tell them where they can find Jesus and take him away. But this presents a problem for Jesus. You see, Jesus was trying to fulfill the scriptures. He was trying to be the sacrificed Passover lamb for Israel. He was trying to be that. He has his death penned into his calendar on this day. So Jesus needs to get the Jewish religious leadership on his schedule. He needs his death to come much more expediently than they have planned it. So here at this supper, he forces this conversation about betrayal with his betrayer present and lets his betrayer know that his plot has been exposed. Why? Because he hopes that then he'll run to the Jewish religious leadership and say, hey guys, 
He knows. I don't know how he found out, but he found out. I know you didn't want to do this today, but if you want this done, we have to do this now before he leaves Jerusalem and vanishes. You see, that's, that's the situational dynamics that are at play. So when Jesus says, what you're doing, do it quickly, he, it's kind of a bit of a trick. I mean, Jesus sincerely meant it, but Judas interpreted it as Jesus found out and he's going to get away, and if we don't act now, well, I'm out 30 pieces of silver. So, so, so that's the situation that's going on uh, here. This is why Jesus is trying to get Judas to act faster than the plan was. And if, as we continue reading, we're going to see that Jesus was successful uh, on Passover morning because Passover starts at sundown and it goes to sundown, but Passover morning, he'll be on the cross as the Passover lamb of the world. So those are those uh, situational dynamics at play. But, but the difficult part of this passage are the spiritual dynamics, right? Like the spiritual dynamics that John pulls us into here is pretty unsettling. Uh, John, who hasn't given us a single example of demon possession, even though the other three synoptic writers do, they give us lots of demon possession accounts, um, he tells us of the Satan possession of Judas to accomplish this. And, and perhaps what's even more dis- difficult to grasp, more difficult to hold, it seems like this was the plan the whole time, and it seems like Jesus this whole time has been the one holding Satan back from entering into Judas. There's like this exchange with the bread that Jesus gives to Judas, and Judas eats it, and then Satan comes. It seems like this is the plan the whole time, and it seems like Jesus is greenlighting it here. This is this difficult to hold, is it not? And this is what Jesus attaches to it in this teaching, starting in verse 18. He says, I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen, but the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Skip down to verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. So while Jesus has announced that he's going to be betrayed, he knows the series of events, spiritually and situationally, that are going to happen in order for that to take place. He, he lets them know it's part of his plan. He's not cold and calculated about it at all. He's deeply distraught. He's deeply emotional here. He, he loved Judas. He just washed Judas's feet, and it tore him up inside. John clearly uses this phrase, troubled in his spirit, as a callback to when he showed up on the scene, when Jesus showed up on the scene to Lazarus, found out that Lazarus was dead, it says, and Jesus was troubled in his spirit. The, 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 to, to say, John, John saying a similar emotion and, 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 and troubling nature that Jesus had then is, is, was present here as he contemplated Judas betraying him and being handed over to Satan and, and all that that was going to lead to. So the same sadness that Jesus had to mourn the death of his friend Lazarus was present here too. But it, but it even seems that um, as Jesus withdraws this protection from Satan, it, it's really difficult to read. I mean, if you're anything like me, it's like, whoa. Isn't there any other way? Like, 
come on. And so it's almost, it's not that unreasonable of a conclusion to, to, to say, God needed a fall guy, and I guess Judas fit the bill, so God used him to serve his own plans. You know, like, I get that. Like, that's not an unreasonable accusation here to make against God, but, but just remember that it really tore him up inside, too. That, that, that he really looked and, and experienced the same uh, mourning in, in his spirit as the death of his friend, because another one of his friends, I think, was dying here. He sees it coming. Now, there, there are two things to consider here as we contemplate um, how God might use one of his um, creatures that he loves so much to a, a bitter, bitter end. Okay, so uh, two considerations I just want to touch on real quick with us here. The first consideration is what God does with a heart that's hard towards him. What God does with a heart that's hard towards him. Um, that is, how does God interact with someone who doesn't want any part of him? That doesn't really want to know him, that doesn't really want him in their life. Well, it's, it's a lot more nuanced than you might think. Um, and the place you go to investigate it is the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus. And you go to the book of Exodus because of the 25 times that hardness of heart is mentioned in the first two-thirds of the Bible. Uh, 16 of them come in a mention to one person. They're about one person, and that's the Pharaoh. The, the, the Pharaoh who was, was uh, king of Egypt, you could say, in the time of the Israelite slavery. Um, you know, and so there's this, Moses shows up, and, and really what you find out as the reader is that Moses shows up to deliver his people, uh, God's people from Egypt, and, and it's just said right there that Pharaoh's heart is hard. It's, it's just like this proclamation that the, the editor gives us. Pharaoh's heart was hard. Um, and then there's... Uh, uh, Moses goes back and forth to Pharaoh when each one of these plagues come, you know, and, and after each one of the plagues, with the exception of like one or two of them, there's always a comment about the state of Pharaoh's heart after each one of the plagues. And in the first five plagues, and Dave touched on this briefly a couple of weeks ago as well, in the first five plagues, the statement is either, and Pharaoh's heart was hard, or and Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Then after the sixth plague, you do have this this um, comment that the editor gives us, which is, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. To so like a heart that has hardened itself and continues to harden itself to God, God actually um, ends up hardening it and letting it continue to be hard and, and so that he can use it towards his purposes and his ends in the world. Because for some reason, the God of these scriptures appreciates irony um, and he really appreciates irony to the extent that he's gonna let evil work for his good ends. Like, like letting a heart be hard to the point where it, it, it works for his good is, is meant to show how foolish and, 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 and silly a hard heart really is. Um, and, and so that's really what's going on here. God invites a heart over and over and over to soften towards him, but if those invitations are rebuffed, um, and one continues, God will use that to accomplish his ends. Now, I have to make a really, really important qualifying statement here because I don't want to be misunderstood. Um, you and I, we can't see hearts. We can't see hearts at all. Only God can see hearts. 
we can really only see actions. And experience tells us that even the worst actions committed by someone who seems to be really hard and and unwilling to have God in their life, experience tells us that that heart can be softened again. That that heart can actually discover who Jesus is, encounter the living God, and confess anything and everything that they've done and experienced life with God again. John's kind of writing here, and he knows the end of the Judas story. He knows that at some point in the middle of the night, Judas is going to take his own life. But we, as God's followers, and experience tells us that we can have hope no matter what, how hard we may think someone's heart might be. We can have hope. Now, God sees the heart. He sees when they're hard. And he knows and has decided when he's going to use hard hearts to accomplish his purposes to frustrate evil. To frustrate evil. And, and when he does that, um, he gives that person over to their desires in order that those desires being manifest might be true, shown for how truly empty they are. This is not just a, a dynamic that's present in the Old Testament God or the Hebrew God or the Old Testament scriptures, um, but throughout the whole thing. And so I wanted to go to Romans chapter one to show it to you. And I want you to think of Judas, actually, as we read Romans chapter one, okay? Don't don't think about yourself or anybody else right now. Think about Judas as we read through Romans chapter one. It's gonna start in verse 16. Paul's writing this to the Roman, the Christians who are uh, in Rome. He says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Okay, verse 18. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is something that Judas has been doing. He's been suppressing the truth that Jesus is worthy of worship. John, in his Gospel of John, is like showing how Jesus made incredibly audacious claims, claims to be God throughout, and Judas has refused to accept this. Okay? Now, Romans 1 is going to go on and talk about this in other ways that it looks. Since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, think about Judas, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in in the desires of their hearts. We talked about it a little bit already. What was the desire of Judas's heart? He was a greedy guy. He was a greedy guy. So God delivered Judas over to the desires of his hearts to have money, greed, went to the Jewish religious leadership to get 30 pieces of silver, okay? Therefore God delivered them over and the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator. So Judas worshiped money, okay? Who is praised forever, amen. 
Okay, so I just wanted you to, to, to see that, that dynamic that's happening here, similar to Pharaoh, uh, similar to, to lots of people. Judas here has been given over to his own desires of, of greed and money. And again, a disclaimer, never, ever, ever write anybody off, okay? Even if God has delivered them over to their own desires, you don't know the end of the story. The whole goal of God delivering them over to their desires is that they might experience how empty them being actualized actually is, that their wildest dreams don't come true, that they fall completely flat. That's why, and so there's great hope to be had for everybody, no matter where on the spectrum they might be. And so if you're here today being like, oh shoot, am I in that camp? Have I been delivered over? Like, is it too late for me to come back? Am I just like a Judas here? Like, no, definitely not. Like Jesus said, all who seek me, find me. All who ask for me, receive me. This is in Matthew 7. We should throw it on the screen instead of me trying to, um, yeah. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is part of what we do at Alpha, is we we help people ask for God's presence in their life, and we see God show up in their life for the first time. So, That's the first consideration, what God does with a hard heart. He will sometimes give it over to its own desires, like with Judas here. The second consideration um, is much less intense and has to do with this quotation that Jesus grabs from Psalm chapter 41. Did you see it in verse um, 18? This is a strange verse that Jesus points to, just like a pulls out like half of a verse from Psalm 41. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. And he says, this is why, guys. What? <laughs> this, is, this is why this scripture has to be fulfilled? Why? <laughs> like that's because King David a thousand years ago was betrayed, so you have to be betrayed? Like what? That's a little strange, right? Dying on the exact Passover day isn't enough for you, Jesus? Now you like also have to like reenact David and some, like what's going on here? Quoting Psalm 41. Well, I don't have, we don't really have time to go into unpacking this thread of betrayal through all the scriptures, but God had told his people that they would recognize the Messiah coming on the scene um, to establish his kingdom in that person because he would establish his kingdom with the Messiah in a similar manner to that which he established the kingdom of David a thousand years before Jesus. A thousand years. And, and um, and uh, David was actually betrayed a couple times as he came into the throne, and it seemed like he was betrayed a couple times after that as well. And he wrote Psalm 41 that talks of this unnamed betrayer. You know, he had lots of different betrayers, but this one is just anonymous for us in Psalm 41. But it's important to know and let you know that Psalm 41 isn't just any old psalm. It's a very special psalm. Uh, not all psalms are created equal, I guess you could say. And, and it's special in this way. Um, the Psalms actually have a very intentional order about them. They come in five books. There's five books of the Psalms. Book one is chapters one through 41. One through 41, two, it has a, a two a Psalm introduction, then 39 Psalms, 37 of them are written by David. And at the end of Psalm 41, it actually says this. It says this, I think we have it for you. It says, this is David writing. 
You supported me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. This is David saying, you've established your kingdom in me, God. And then all of them end with this phrase, blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. What's going on? Well, an editor has, has come and compiled the Psalms under certain themes that are meant to communicate Israel's history. And, and the first book of the Psalms is all about the establishment of King David's throne. It ends like that, boom, it's established, yay, hooray. Okay? The second book of the, of the Psalms includes a lot of David's reign. In fact, at the end of the second book of the Psalms, it says the Psalms of David, the son of Jesse, are here concluded. Okay, and it actually ends with the song of Solomon, um, his next reigning descendant. And, and then the third book of, so that's the second book, it's all about David's reign as king. And then the third book really encapsulates the reign of David's descendants on the throne. And it ends with the kingdom of Israel being wiped out and exiled. So book four picks up how you think it would then. These are the Psalms of the exile where Israel's crying out that God would come and rule over them once more. And book five is God doing just that. They're, they're most joyous and praise-filled Psalms. They're the Psalms of a center there. Maybe you didn't know this is what's going on in the Psalms, but it's actually a timeline of Israel's history that some unknown um, compiler put them in this order and put little notes at the end of each one, like we, we said, to tip us off, and they were kept on different scrolls, not because they all wouldn't fit on one, like the scroll of Jeremiah. Jeremiah has more words in the Psalms than it was on a single scroll, but because these are distinct moments in Israel's history. And the first book ends in Psalm 41, the establishment of King David's throne. And it's a bunch of Bible nerd stuff, but Jesus wants to appease the Bible nerds, like me, like perhaps you. It's a bunch of Bible nerd stuff, but Jesus says, this is how it has to be. I need to be betrayed just like David was betrayed. Because you know that David story? It's really all about me. It's really all about me. And that's why Jesus says, I'm telling you now before this happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. So I'm telling you now that I'll be betrayed before it happens. So when it does happen, you'll, you'll know that I am he. He's not saying you'll know that I like, can tell the future, or I'm some fortune teller, or I have insight, and some like, psychic powers or something like this. So that you know that I am he, that, that I'm the one that's meant to come and rule and, and have his kingdom established just like King David. That's what he's saying. I am he, the one that all the Jews are looking for and waiting for. Okay. So that's the Judas side of the conversation. The betrayer. Let's transition a little bit here over to Peter. There's a couple uh, transition remarks that Jesus makes here. Um, because all this talk about, uh, about betrayal naturally makes Jesus contemplate all that's to come for the rest of his disciples, uh, for himself, his death, his resurrection, his, uh, and he calls that his glorification. Uh, he talked about the most humiliating thing, the cross, a human being can experience, and he called it glorification. It's completely backwards, and we preached a sermon on that in uh, John chapter 12, because he talks about this same subject with the crowds back in December. So if you want to understand exactly how that works, go back and give that a listen to. But Jesus' resurrection, uh, it didn't mean he was going to stick around with his disciples afterwards, apparently. It didn't mean he was going to stick around and lead his own movement, which is counterintuitive. His plan was to leave and have his followers pick it up. 
So the idea of his departure leads to a conversation about what the disciples, well, how, what the heck are we supposed to do, Jesus? If, well, actually, they don't even ask that question. They just like, we're gonna see, there, there's gonna be three more interactions, much like this one here, with like, wait, you're going? Like, where are you going? Like, what's going on here? You know, like, and so like the followers are trying to grasp with this, but Jesus is, what he says here is really remarkable. He's saying, just like in the book of John, we've seen it many times, where Jesus looks at the crowds and says, if you receive me, you can receive the Father. Or if you don't receive me, it means you reject God, the Father. What he does here is he adds the disciples as the next link in that Father revelation chain. It's in, um, it's in verse 20. He says that, truly I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me. And the one who receives me receives him who sent me. So we have this addition of followers of Jesus onto this revealing chain of God. Jesus is saying like, if people are open to being friends with you, they might be open to being friends with me. And if they're open to being friends with me, they're open to being friends with God. Cue the alpha announcement, okay? (laughs) So uh, great job, Dave, great job, Dave. So Jesus leaving, yeah. So we're, we're gonna talk about that subject a lot more in the coming weeks um, as Jesus talks about what his disciples can expect moving forward. I mean, we just have a block of Jesus' text for, for three chapters, 14, 15, and 16, all right? So let's get to Peter. Because all of this talk of Jesus being betrayed and leaving has made him really anxious, really anxious. He says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus saw the real question he was asking he saw that the real question that Peter wanted to be with Jesus everywhere he went. He wanted to go too. So Jesus says, you can't follow me there. To which Peter replied, what? You're saying I can't do something? You're saying I'm inadequate? You think I don't have the guts? Peter was the type of person that if you tell them they can't do something, they're gonna work extra, extra hard to prove to you that they can do something. Anybody know these type of people? This is Peter. He says, you're you're saying that I'm gonna be too scared or unwilling to sacrifice what I need to sacrifice in order to follow you? I'll show you. I'm gonna go all the way to the end. Even if I die, I'm there. And it brings to mind, actually, the promise of Ruth way back in the time of Judges in Israel, before King David was even a king. Um, Hebrew... Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, widowed. Both of them are widowed. Uh, She tells Ruth, who's a Moabite, to go back to her people, go find a new husband over there. But Ruth courageously declares, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. It's a courageous and bold thing to say to another person. And Peter was trying to conjure up as much Ruth-like spirit and energy that he could, but Jesus knew Peter. Jesus knew that it wasn't there yet. Ruth had it, Peter didn't have it yet. Jesus knew that even Peter's allegiance, um, who seems to be his most devoted disciples, even that his allegiance has its limits. Jesus knew that that Peter will actually value his own life 
over letting his connection to Jesus be known. And we get it, we live in Seattle, don't we? Like we're always tempted to downplay or even outright deny our allegiance to Jesus for fear of the blowback that might come our way, don't we? We've, we, we feel this. Maybe you don't. Maybe you, along with Peter, you would say, not me, not me, Ryan, not me. Till the end, till death. Well, I guess I'd just ask you, are you actually friends with people who are not yet Christians? Are you spending extended time with them? Because they're great. And to be rejected by them sucks. It hurts. And there's so many so wonderful people I find that people who typically overestimate their allegiance only hang out with Christians, typically. <laughs> but, but there was hope for Peter, because here's the thing. Peter still had a soft heart for Jesus. Peter loved Jesus. Now, was he overconfident? Absolutely. Did he overestimate his abilities? Sure, of course he did. But he loved Jesus. Such a soft heart. Judas's heart was hard. He loved himself. He loved how giving to poor people made him look. He loved money. He probably loved the things that money bought, but he didn't love Jesus. That's why he sold him out. You you can say it like this. Judas wanted to use Jesus to get what he really wanted, but not Peter. Peter just wants to be with Jesus. He loves him. But he just didn't have the capability to do that quite yet. And so for Peter... Jesus designed a plan of grace to get him there. And what did it look like? Verse 38. Jesus replied, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. And you might say, Grace? Yes! This is an incredibly gracious gift from Jesus to Peter. Jesus gave Judas over to his own desires, Romans 1, but to Peter he gives a rooster. It's great. Why would he do this? Well, it's not that complicated. What do roosters do? They wake people up. They wake people up. To wake him up. That's what roosters do. Jesus gave a rooster to Peter to wake him up. And, and we're, we're going to see it play out in the rest of John. You know, it's in like four or five chapters, so it's going to be several months. It's okay to talk about it now, okay? It's okay to talk about it now. But Jesus, or Peter, standing in the courtyard of the high priest after Jesus is taken to the high priest's house in the middle of the night, he's standing in the courtyard by the fire warming himself. And people keep on coming up to him and asking, hey, are you one of the followers of Christ? And, and he says, no, not once. Not twice, but three times. Three times. And then the rooster in all of its grace, cockle-doodle-doo, crows. And Peter is cut to the heart. And the synoptic writers tell us that he left that courtyard. He runs out of that courtyard. He broke down emotionally and he wept bitterly. This is what happened to Peter. It's such a gift. It's a beautiful scene, actually. You see, Peter actually didn't have the conviction after his first denial that he was denying Jesus at all, it seems. Then not after the second denial, he denies probably his best friend, doesn't have the conviction. 
He probably wouldn't have had it after the third conviction either. He was in the act of habitually denying Jesus over and over and over again without conviction until that rooster crows, until it it, it gives that cockle-doodle-doo. How blind we can be without roosters. It worked. It worked. After the rooster, Peter's eyes are opened. He wept, he confessed, and we know that he eventually grew beyond his current denying self because just in seven weeks' time, he's gonna be the one that gives the sermon that kicks off the Jesus movement. He's gonna look at the Jews and say, you killed Jesus, God in the flesh. That courage, that boldness is gonna be there. But it's not grounded in some insecure assertiveness. It's grounded in in love for his savior and in duty for the next part of the plan. And it's gonna continue throughout his life. He will go to the grave because he wouldn't deny Jesus. So now remember, John wants us to process this individually. He wants us to ask if there are any pieces of Judas or any pieces of Peter that are in us. Because let me tell you, as a pastor, I've had many conversations with people who have made the decision to live their life contrary to to how Jesus and his scriptures would would encourage them to live a life. And and sometimes as we're in the conversation, their, their argument is a version of this. But Ryan... I don't feel any conviction in living this way. If it was really as wrong as you say it is, then God would let me know. He'd convict me, he loves me. Hold on though, are you sure you don't just have a hard heart? Are you sure that God hasn't given you over to your own desires instead of just giving you a rooster? Are you sure that his scriptures aren't a rooster of correction for you? This is how his scriptures are meant to be. Uh, Solomon, in his old age, in writing to his son, uh, shares from this, shares this in Proverbs chapter three. Um, He puts it like this. Maybe we have it. Maybe I forgot to send that one to you, Emily. Sorry, I'll I'll just turn over to it. Proverbs chapter three. Proverbs comes after Psalms. Here we go. All right, three, 11. Solomon says, he's writing to his son and any other people who would like to view Solomon as their father. Uh, it's actually a big part of my story. Like, I, d- I don't really feel like I had a father growing up that would really um, instruct me in the ways of the Lord. And so I encountered Proverbs when I was in college and I like found a dad. So many of you is like in the same boat, like there's a dad here for you. That'll instruct you in the ways of the Lord. Solomon says this, uh, do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. God sends roosters, is what Solomon is saying. God corrects and disciplines his children like a good father. If you find yourself living contrary to how his scriptures plainly instruct us to live and you don't feel any conviction, the logical conclusion should be that you've been given over to your desires to feel their full effects so that you might see how empty they are and and, and consider asking him for roosters again. And then he can send you roosters. Okay, so all this final application, okay? The question then becomes, how can we identify the roosters that God sends us? 
It's a strange question, I get it. Um, I think it's three. I think there's three of them. And each of them have their own downfalls. So I think we need, if we just only use one of them, uh, these three ways. And so we need to lean on all three of them like a tripod, okay? If we're truly gonna identify the times in our life when God's actually trying to wake us up, okay? So I'm gonna give you the tripod here. Uh, The the first, uh, we might say, perhaps it's reading our Bibles and praying. When we do those things, uh, we sometimes find illumination in our shortcomings and conclude that uh, we need to live more in line with how God has called us to live. Sure, that's great, and that's true, but it can't be the only way, because you see, when we're we're by ourselves, it's actually hard to objectively see yourself, and the the, the more religious of us, um, we're actually more likely to find the things in our scripture and prayer time um, that um, justify how we're already living our life. We kind of put it in the hopper to use, like, hey, I'm righteous, like, that's what the more religious of us do. Ugh, that's me. Okay. And while the, the, the less religious of us tend to focus on the parts of scripture that emphasize God's love and his grace towards us and, and by so doing kind of minimize that there's actually a real call on our life to follow him in, in, in real ways. So, so if you solely rely upon your quiet time to be your rooster, you might never actually hear it is what I'm trying to say. Um, second, we might conclude that we need community. Um, we need to be in we, we might say we need to be in community with other people who know us and see our lives and are able to speak into our lives with us. Um, we, we, we might say there are times when those people have helped me see things about myself that I couldn't see and they, and they came alongside me and they challenged me and it pointed me towards life. That person was a rooster that God had sent into my life. Amen. That's true. That's good. It works. It happens. Praise the Lord. Um, but we can't solely rely upon it because here's the rub people don't really challenge people anymore. <laughs> like, even Christians. Like, there's been several times when someone's come to me and said, like, this person is, like, very clearly and willfully walking away from, like, the faith of Jesus Christ. And I've been like, great, what's your conversation look like with them? And I can't remember a time when the answer wasn't, ah, none. Like, like challenge doesn't really happen all that often anymore. And so we can't really just say, okay, if I'm, like, God will send me roosters and other people. He does that sometimes, and praise the Lord, but we, we can't only rely upon that. We need all three. And the third one is this. We, we, we might point to the weekly worship service. When we worship in, in song and by listening to the preached word, um, we can all, like, often feel the illumination that God's trying to wake us up and get us to pay attention to things that we are kind of out of our periphery, that we're not aware of, that we're not self-aware of, you know? And, and sure, that happens. It's true, and it's great, God can provide roosters this way, uh, but do we really show up all the time hoping for a rooster? And when we receive one, do we really like work hard to apply it? I don't know. (laughs) So if you just rely upon the worship service to be your rooster in your life, uh, you might not get woken up in the ways that God wants to wake you up. This is actually Pastor Dave's story. He loved the rooster of the worship service so much that he was going to two church services every Sunday for years. But he would say, I was incredibly underdeveloped as a follower of Jesus. We need to do all three, and if we are lacking in one, then the tripod falls over. That's the analogy here. So, I guess, um, by God's grace, maybe we learn to greatly value roosters, guys. You know, let's greatly value roosters and be on the lookout in all the ways that he wants to send them in our lives. Let's pray.